Hold it right there. Before we get into today's show, I have a quick announcement for you. Here at Smart Logic, we are currently hiring. Specifically, we're looking for a senior software project manager. A project manager should be someone with expertise in agile project management, and they should have a track record of delivering projects on time and on budget to satisfied clients. If this sounds like you or someone that you know, we'd love to hear from you. Head on over to smartlogic.io slash jobs to learn more and apply. Okay, now back to the show. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Eben, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by my superhuman co-host and acting producer, Sunday Mint. How are you, Sunday? I'm good. How are you, Justice? I'm doing delightful. Thank you for asking. This season's theme is Adopting Elixir, and today we're joined by special guest Alexandra Chakaris. How are you doing, Alexandra? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Sunday, you bumped into Alexandra somewhere on the internet. Can you just kind of tell us how that, this all came to be? Yeah, it was summer of 2020. No, it was. Yeah, I mean, it, it was actually Elixir Conf, right? We just uh, Elixir Conf just happened or it was in the middle of happening. Ryan Cardarella had just given his talk about his Elixir Conf community survey results. And we got that you know, mind-blowing statistic of 2% of Elixirists are women. And we kind of took a look at that. And then either a few folks, or it was you, Alexandra, who opened up that channel for women and diversity in Elixir. And because you were involved or took initiative, I was like, I want to talk to that person. That person cares about this. So please tell us about that. Yeah, that was pretty much exactly what happened. When I see something like that, i I really like the women's community that we have from the boot camp that I went to. Turing School is like my favorite Slack channel on there is our private women's women and diverse genders channel on there. So I was thinking if there's, you know, only a few hundred of us or something in the Elixir community that we got to figure out how to band together and <laughs> have a good place to get it all out and just, yeah, network and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. This is probably something that, you know, we've seen, you know, in the tech community a lot and we'll we'll probably get to it or we'll, we'll we're definitely going to get to it in a little bit. But just curious about your personal path to programming and your background. Maybe kind of you can sprinkle in other times you've seen that and, you know, you mentioned Turing, so that's a great place to start too. Yeah, so I guess the first time I did any programming was for an embarrassing middle school angel fire page that I made about me and my friends that may or may not still exist on the internet. <laughs> but yeah, aside from that, I was a chemical engineer for about 10 years. So I did MATLAB, like fancy math stuff in college and grad school, and did a lot of like VBA and for Excel, again, doing crazy math stuff or like we did, I was a chemical process engineer, so we would like simulate different processes and use macros and whatever to automate, like running a bunch of different scenarios of things that wasn't something that the software could like inherently do. So yeah, solving those kind of like tough problems that everybody in the group struggled with was something that really I liked about programming. And the thing I didn't like about chemical engineering was... I studied it to work on renewable energy and very quickly got pigeonholed into oil and gas. So 
<laughs> after six years of trying to get out of there, I decided to do a software boot camp and have a lot more flexibility in like industry and location and all of that. So yeah, that's when I decided to go to Turing School in 2019. And you know our good friend Melvin Cedino from oh, Turing? Absolutely. Yep. How do you know Melvin? Tell us a story about Melvin. <laughs> well, so Melvin definitely had a hand in me getting into Elixir. He was really into it before I had graduated even. I think he was maybe a few months before me. And Weed Maps had come into Turing to do like a talk a little bit about Elixir, a little bit about themselves. They were going to do an Elixir workshop for beginners. And my husband's software developer. And when he heard about that, he was like, why are they teaching you guys this Elixir thing? I've never heard of this. Like they're wasting your guys' time. <laughs> and then of course, a few months later, I got a job offer for a company that has Elixir, rank your services. What was the I told you so <laughs> moment? Was there an I told you so moment that you can share? With <laughs> oh, yeah. he, he, he won't listen to the show. He's probably salty <laughs> about the Elixir thing working out. Oh no, he's not salty. <laughs> but yeah, so... So yeah, I just happened to get a job using Elixir. And then like a week after that, Melvin was hosting with the Weed Maps guys in Denver, another workshop for Elixir for Turing students. So yeah, that was my first exposure was reading a tiny bit of the docs and then making some kind of little like URL shortener app in Phoenix. That's amazing. And we know that Melvin's really passionate about intro to Elixir. That was his whole Elixir Conf talk. So Shout out to Melvin for really being passionate about that. When you were first getting started in the program, what was exciting to you about it? You know, you had come from a different industry and you were moving into software. What made you passionate about it? Um, Turing in particular, I really liked that they are a nonprofit, that they have like a really strong social justice mission. And the thing that like really drew them to me in the first place was it when I was looking at different boot camps, particularly in Denver, it seemed like they were the hardest <laughs> and I always want to challenge. So yeah, I really liked Turing for that. And oh, I really liked that they have like a either front end or back end program versus being full stack. Front end doesn't interest me that much. And I like that it was kind of sold as like getting really in depth onto one thing versus being like jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, I always wonder about that. I mean, I've taken a boot camp class myself, and I think it was full stack. I, I don't think that's what the name was, but I always wonder for like somebody who doesn't know anything about the industry, if they looked at front end and back end, how would they even you know make that decision? I'm sure the description was something. Something in the description of that class must have enticed you more than the front end one, right? Yeah, I think that I'm just like a very with that engineering background. I'm very into like problem solving, like logic-y stuff. And I know that there's a ton of that on the front end as well, but like, I'm not a very good like design oriented person either. So yeah, back end definitely drew me in more. When you were first getting started with, I want to say Elixir specifically, but I'm also curious about just programming in general, since you have, do have that sort of non-traditional background. What were some of the extracurricular resources outside of Turing that you remember as being especially helpful? So I'm somebody that really likes to learn by doing. So I haven't been somebody that's leaned on a lot of like courses or books or that kind of thing. When I first started Elixir, I did like a few of the exorcism stuff, <laughs> but really like I just kind of jumped into it 
at work, like, yeah, just kind of like learning by example of what we already had in our microservices and kind of building on that. I think like going to meetups and learning little tidbits there has been hugely helpful too. Have you been going to a lot of meetups during the kind of 2020 (laughs) shutdown is what I'm calling it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I try to go to the Denver Elixir meetup every month. I just became an organizer, but I haven't really done anything for it yet. (laughs) It's a lot of work. I'm running the DC Elixir one and I'm like trying to take some feedback we got from last year and apply it to this year. And I have so many ambitions, but time, time is always the, the obstacle there. So I wish you luck with that. Well, I wanted to hear about this first job that you got that gave you the opportunity to use Elixir and like, what was the process like for you getting the job and sort of assimilating into a completely new professional environment? Yeah. So my first job was at Dispatch Health and they have Ruby on Rails monolith, which was like kind of their original application. And then over the last couple of years, they've been building all of their microservices whenever they have like a big new chunk of functionality that they can abstract away. They've been doing that in Phoenix. So it was a really good intro for me because Ruby on Rails is what I had already learned in school. So I was able to kind of like weave one into the other, <laughs> like get a nice on-ramp of the things that I was already familiar with, build on that and yeah, kind of have those examples of what they had already built and just go off of that. It was kind of interesting though, like seeing the Phoenix apps built by people that were used to Rails. And I'm sure this is a very common transition. (laughs) But yeah, it felt like we were kind of trying to make Phoenix and Elixir more like Ruby on Rails. (laughs) Like we were using gen servers for a lot of things that probably shouldn't have. (laughs) Like just trying to force things to kind of like act like an object, if that makes sense. I don't think I've seen that myself, but I'm really curious now. (laughs) Justice, have you seen that? Yeah, it's not, I wouldn't say a super common refrain, but it's definitely something that has come up before, especially early on, I think before like 1.3 or something, one of the early Phoenix versions had a directory structure that I think it was like an MVC directory structure that kind of looked a lot like Rails. So I want to say this came up on a recent episode. Anyway, I was also curious just about like, you know, you're interviewing for the first time. Uh, what were your initial impressions of, you know, most people have like this sort of made like a reaction to tech interview processes. And I'm curious what yours was that first time around. I feel like I cheated the first time because, <laughs> because yeah, I had done a project in school, a Turing for their demo competition that they have every couple of months. And we got like second place in that competition And my husband, who's also a developer, posted about that on LinkedIn. And one of his old coworkers saw that and was like, oh, we're hiring. So I pretty much got an interview through that and took the first offer that I got. So (laughs) that is not called cheating. We call that networking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly how it's done. My first job in tech, like I just showed up at the guy's house every day for like a month and worked for free until he was like, all right, fine. Like, here's a pittance. Just stay. (laughs) (laughs) That's super cool. Well, so you were learning Elixir that first job, but then you've moved on, I think. And so where are you now and and how are you using Elixir at your current role? Yeah, so pretty soon after the lockdown stuff all started, I started up at Blinker. And yeah, I'm kind of mid-level engineer there now. I guess as a kind of a background, Blinker is we help with user-to-user auto sales right now, mostly on Auto Trader, 
So we're kind of taking over their part of their site where they do user to user auto sales versus like they normally have a dealership on either end of it. But yeah, it's like way more secure than, you know, Craigslist or that kind of thing helps with like financing and that kind of thing too. Can you talk about how Elixir is helping you build that stack in a way that leverages Elixir resources or, you know, like why did you guys choose Elixir, I guess? Yeah. So I asked today so that I knew the history a little bit was (laughs) that they had been using Elixir a little bit for several years, probably like three or four years, starting out, not really client facing stuff, but About a year ago, I think, they started building the application that we're working in now. We have an Elixir umbrella app that they started fresh last like March or something like that when they kind of shifted gears in the business. So yeah, our main backend is an Elixir mono repo. That's been working out really well with us. I really like the way that we've been able to design that. So is the current, you said it is currently an umbrella app or it was like your the first, could you just go through that again? (laughs) Yeah. So originally they had done some like little small projects in Elixir, but now like since last March when they started building the repo till when we went live with this product with AutoTrader in November, our entire backend, except for a couple little microservices that we have in Rust is an Elixir mono repo. Okay. So it is an umbrella app currently. Yeah. Okay. This is definitely a digression from the script. Because umbrella apps come up occasionally on the show, and usually the opinions are very like, like no, it's not a good idea to, <laughs> to use an umbrella. And so now I'm really curious, like what your experience has been like. How, what's your take on using or not using an umbrella app for your Elixir project? All of the non-umbrella apps that I used at my previous job were pretty small pieces of functionality that didn't feel like they needed that. But yeah, the experience that I've had so far at Blinker with our Umbrella app has been really good. I mean, we have like separate apps for, we have like a web app and a core app that has all of our business logic and persistence that does all the communication with the database and one for like external APIs and some other stuff. But yeah, I don't know. It's worked out really well for us. It was definitely some growing pains like initially with how we had things set up versus like we definitely had to do a lot of refactoring to get it how we wanted it. But now it's pretty simple to add on to. So that's been really great. It kind of sounds like the way a lot of people use microservices, but you get the benefit of that within a mono repo. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it's really nice that you can just like reference a function in another app without like making an HTTP call. <laughs> okay. Okay, so the growing pains that you had moving into this style of architecture were from the, you were taking these microservices and moving them into an umbrella app. No, no, no. Okay. no this is, we basically built this entire app from scratch, yeah. Okay, so when you talk about those early refactoring hurdles, what could, did you learn from that process that might be useful to someone who's listening who might be considering using an umbrella app for, you know, whatever production problem that they're trying to solve? I guess one of the hardest problems that we had with it was like kind of establishing a lingua franca between the apps, if that makes sense. Like we ended up making an entire app that we called entities for like, this is kind of like the shape of data that, you know, the web layer knows about that the business logic layer knows about. 
so that, yeah, we could like kind of pass those around, those structs around as like a common expected data structure. Hmm. Is that pattern working for you? Yeah, it's worked pretty well. There's like a couple weird things around like factories for like inserting things. Kind of what level do you put some of the logic at? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like this is a problem that so many people are going to run into. I mean, right now I'm working with a buddy on a side project and like so much of the questions that we run into are like, how do we structure a thing with a complete blue ocean of possibilities? And so I think it's probably going to be really helpful to somebody to hear. I actually get really intimidated by blue ocean. I'd rather be there like a something to follow. I'd rather know where things are and then I can have an idea in my head. So, you know, hats off to you for that. <laughs> Well, and that's the rail, how Rails became such a successful phenomenon was convention over configuration, right? And I think it might be what, you know, I always like to ask people, and please tell me what your thoughts are on this, but like, what is the Elixir ecosystem kind of missing? And this, I think, will lead into the adoption question, right? Like, what are we missing to make it more accessible to people, especially kind of uh, newer developers who are getting, just getting started? I think the thing that I miss the most out of Rails is active record, like just being able to very easily get to all of the associations and everything for a particular record was really nice that I miss when I have to like write things much more like query oriented in Ecto. Yeah, I don't know. I like the Elixir is more customizable. I mean, I guess in Rails, you can do customizations for that kind of stuff, but like by the default, it kind of like leads you into that structure that ends up getting really unwieldy in the long term. <laughs> and just like, yeah, that whole thing of like making one little change cascading and down into a million different places and just makes it felt really brittle having like a really big Rails app, which I think is a common problem. <laughs> a similar question, but on the non-technical side, what do you think the Elixir ecosystem as a community is missing maybe for helping people ad adopt into elixir or just i don't know feel confident in asking questions places i think that the community has been really good like one person that i talked to about this said you know we're such a small community that we're always like super excited when somebody new is at the meetup or whatever you know like i feel like it is very welcoming and you know we have like the Slack group and Elixir forum and that kind of thing. But I think that all of that is really positive. There's definitely a lot of different courses. And I did a little bit of research on like, which, yeah, kind of free courses online and free books and that kind of thing that there are. And it seems like pretty solid. Have you ever tried to, you know, let a friend know or maybe like a, another colleague from Turing, hey, you should check out Elixir. It's like really cool. Do you ever hear pushback or... Anything? I know I've seen it with my friends in the dev community sometimes. So I'm just curious what your experience has been with that. I haven't really heard pushback against Elixir itself, but I have, I do kind of have the opinion and have heard this from other people as well. As far as like, I'm not sure that I want to encourage, try and get their first job in Elixir just because the community is so small that like, it's yeah, it's hard to like tell somebody when like the first job is obviously your hardest one to get ever to go pigeonhole yourself into this tiny little community that doesn't always do a ton of hiring of juniors. So yeah, I don't know. I've been kind of hesitant to push people to like get really into it for their 
before they have some experience under their belt. I think it does. It's great for like learning those functional paradigms is awesome. Like I think I would write much better object-oriented code now than I did before I learned Elixir. It's interesting. We talk about this a little bit on the season as well about, you know, Elixir communities kind of not hesitance towards hiring junior, but just the fact that they kind of haven't. I don't know, Justice, we've had a few conversations about like, we've been trying to get to the, the crux of the issue, which which seems, I don't know, maybe this is just like me recapping, like a mid-season recap, you know, but I'm thinking about how a lot of people are like, they're smaller companies and they say, we need to ramp up quickly. So we need a mid-level engineer to be able to jump on really fast. And I know I've mentioned before that when I was job searching last summer, I actually only saw senior roles. People, and you could tell these recruiters, you know, weren't as knowledgeable. They'd be like, yeah, you need to know Elixir for 10 years. And I'm like, it's not 10 years old yet. I think as of today, the 10 year anniversary was like two days ago or something. I think I saw that oh, really? this morning. Yeah, I think Jose posted something on January. Today's the 14th. I think it was on the 11th. It was a blog post about happy 10 year birthday. Yeah, that question of how to grow sort of the entry level side of the community is an ongoing question. Smart Logic is the organization behind this podcast, and they do a terrific, terrific job of that in particular, meaning they go out of their way to hire people who are a little bit more uh, junior and train them up. And you know, we've had apprenticeship programs, that kind of thing. So it's definitely a major concern for Smart Logic. And it's also really hard, especially in the remote world, to bring people up in that way. And I, you know, there's not really a ton of you know, from a profit motive, you don't, you don't have a lot of incentive to do that, which is why, you know, they don't do it so much at, uh, you know, it's not like Facebook or whatever is like hiring boot camp grads to, to like level them up, you know, unless they're really smart already or have some kind of Ivy league background. Right. Yeah. It's really hard. Cause I feel like a lot of the diversity problem in tech, if we're only ever hiring people that are already in the tech community, <laughs> We're never going to change those demographics and that kind of thing, too. So it's like, I don't know. It's a hard question. So do you think one of the core entry points of the diversity problem that we'd have to tackle is with the hiring juniors? Do you think that's like a big part of it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think that hiring in general, like I did a little bit of poking through some of those Elixir ecosystem survey results and like of the women and non-binary respondents, the majority learned Elixir because it was at their job. You know, like most people were coming into Elixir because of a job opportunity, not because of like some blog post or side project or whatever. So yeah, I think like within Elixir and just in general in tech that, yeah, we're not, we can't change anything unless we actually change something. <laughs> Right. There is this question of like whether or not the objectives are kind of like at odds, right? Like, is it at, is it coherent for someone who's just getting into the like you were saying? You know, you wouldn't recommend to them necessarily to pursue elixir because it would be harder for them in order to acquire a job, right? And then I think about the people that go toward that gravitate toward the elixir who are concerned with issues of functional programming or scalability, things like that that you would only be concerned with if you were already a developer or an entrepreneurial type of thinking person. So. Yeah, these are really challenging questions. I think that probably we want to talk a little bit more about that survey because that's what brought us here today. And also like specifically around diversity and inclusion. How do you, you know, I, I have this question as to whether like we talk about diversity and inclusion. It seems like it must be diversity of something. And so the something that it's of would, I think, maybe affect how you you know want to 
gain progress in that dimension. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. If that makes sense. Does that question even make sense? Right? Like this diversity of sex, there's probably different approaches to solving that problem than diversity of race or diversity of anything. I'm not sure I have a good, a good answer to that. But yeah, I mean, I think it does depend on kind of what you're targeting. Because I think one of the main ways that like companies can go about hiring more diverse folks is to like, you know, obviously you can't be like, we are only hiring women or whatever. Like, we don't want you if you're white or whatever. It's much more effective and legal, obviously, <laughs> to go after hiring out of like a historically black college or university or like putting on a workshop for like Society of Women Engineers or like National Society of Black Engineers or that kind of thing. Yeah, and there's some newsletters too. I know in at least in the DC area, we have a DMV based newsletter called Diversify Tech, where a lot of people can post their job posting to that if they're, well, I guess, to bring it back to the beginning, a lot of it is pipeline, right? The pipeline of candidates coming in are not, there may be like one kind of person, one demographic from one school that was maybe an Ivy League, you know, they're all from Stanford, they're all from Carnegie Mellon, right? So that pipeline is kind of important. So having like the, those kind of diverse newsletters is helpful. You mentioned that you were in a, a women Slack channel or was that Turing specific? Yeah. I'm a, yeah. But there is like a women, women in tech Slack group or something like that as well. But yeah, mostly active in that Turing Joan Clark society. Yeah. I noticed that like in the DC area, we have women who code DC and, you know, I'll post Elixir job posts there too. It's just a little difficult. I noticed, you know, it's, it's a niche language. It's hard. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is a hard question. That's why we wanted to have this conversation, you know, and talk about it. So since the survey results came out and, you know, we made that channel, do you feel like that was effective or do you feel like there's more things we could be doing within the Elixir Lang Slack to kind of perpetuate more conversation or engagement? It's hard to say because, yeah, look at like we've kind of discussed, like a lot of these things kind of fall onto the business to actually make them happen. You know, it's like, like what is like, quote unquote, the Elixir community? I guess like you can kind of think of it as the you know, open source community, maybe conferences, meetups, that kind of thing. Podcasts, obviously. But yeah, I think that some of the things that we could do around those levels, like I think that Elixir Comp was really awesome for like highlighting diverse speakers. I think that, that that's something that we can do more on like podcasts and meetups and that kind of thing. Just like seeing somebody that's like you, you know, gives the next person coming up the feeling like, oh, I can do this, you know? <laughs> and I think that that has a big impact. There's some things around like having like a code of conduct or like diversity policies or that kind of thing that, I don't know. I looked at like Python and I think Homebrew and some others have kind of like a diversity policy, but I'm not sure if it's something that anybody ever really looks at, <laughs> but Elixir does not have that, but. The language or the Slack? Because I know that that can, can kind of be a thing in communities too. Yeah. I looked at the language. Yeah, I'm not sure if the Slack group has like a code of conduct or something like that. I don't know, Justice, you've probably interacted more in there than I have. Do you know if there's one? The Elixir Lang Slack? Yeah. I have no idea if there's a code of conduct. I feel like we're lurkers. 
yeah, it's like, it's weird. Cause like that kind of like community level things just feel kind of surface level, you know, like it's, it feels like things that like either people in the business do or like individuals do when just like interacting with other human beings are like the things that like really make an impact, you know? Yeah. Anything institutional like that. So I'll tell you a funny story because it's very recent. One week ago today, I asked because Sunday has been uh, coming up with many uh, myriad of good ideas for how to improve the accessibility of the Slack channel via emojis. And so I asked who runs the Slack organization in the general channel thinking like, oh, maybe I'll get in touch with them and pitch Sunday's idea and claim it as my own. And no one responded (laughs) except for this one guy, Paul, who said, who runs Barter Town? which I don't know what that's referring to. And I didn't Google barter town. So now I'm regretting even bringing it up because it would have been bad. <laughs> so in this case, right, a code, a code of conduct sort of precluding barter town references probably would have been helpful. But no, yeah, I guess my, what I'm saying is I have like, I don't even have like the cachet to get names out of the general channel. So one thing that I heard feedback from somebody about like specifically meetups and that kind of thing can be more inclusive is like having an email address or something like that, like some kind of dedicated channel to like report when there was some troublesome person at a meetup or something during the meetup made them feel uncomfortable or that kind of thing. And like also having one thing that we have in the Denver meetup that's been really awesome is we have like each meetup kind of has like introductions and then we have like a quote unquote beginner track talk. That's like something that, you know, somebody brand new to Elixir can pick up pretty easily and then like the main or like advanced track talk and it's really cool that like everybody goes to both you know like anybody that comes whether you're brand new is going to have something that they can like interact with and understand like talk with the group about ask questions without being like totally over your head (laughs) i remember we did that sort of thing in the ruby community back in the day with you know having a beginner talk and a more advanced talk that definitely, I think, is. I think you have to be intentional about making the community accessible to new developers. I remember I used to ask this question. I was like, when do you think Elixir will sort of like replace Ruby on Rails as like the default option for startups and that sort of thing? And overwhelmingly, I would ask multiple people this question. They almost all said like, that's not a worthy objective type of thing. <laughs> and I began to realize, I was like, you know what, that's a, like, I actually disagree completely. I think that that is like an absolutely worthy objective because it gives you incentive to make your community accessible. It gives you incentive to develop the materials needed for new developers to learn how to program on your platform. So I'm going to die on that hill. And when much smarter people than me disagree with me. So yeah, apparently I can't be persuaded. So yeah, I think we need to intentionally do something about it. I'm curious. I want to like reel back in because we mentioned Rails again. And you also earlier in the conversation, you mentioned a little bit about learning like functional programming through Elixir. And I'm just curious, since we're talking about adoption and accessibility, you know, can you talk about your like experience learning, like coming from you know Ruby on Rails, object-oriented background, learning functional programming, a new paradigm? What were some of the hurdles that you remember having to leap? Honestly, I thought that it was like super logical. Like I feel like functional programming is more math-like. So with my like engineering background, you know, like more, yeah, non-computer science engineering is, <laughs> background. Is chemical engineering mathy, mathish? Sometimes I've, I've solved some partial differential equations in my day. <laughs> 
I'm the very rare dumb engineer, <laughs> which is actually, I think one of the ways that the Elixir community is very inclusive is that they include me. So <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just like, wow, you know, I'm constantly blown away that you would let me in here. <laughs> What's that great saying? Like, I wouldn't want to be a part of any club that would allow me as a member. Who said that? I don't know. Anyway. I like this idea that it is logical. I think that that's true. What about as far as like language features are concerned? When you were first learning Elixir, do you remember what any of the like more challenging concepts were for you? I mean, I think everybody kind of struggles with like OTP gen server stuff when they first start out. OTP, what is that? Don't make me explain it because I <laughs> I try to avoid it at all costs at this point. Really, really, actually, that's that's pretty kind of fascinating. Yeah, actually, I feel like we barely. I'm not sure that I can even think of a single gen server that we have running in our app right now. It took me a year of working in, tool, in Elixir to write anything gen server related. And I broke the whole app <laughs> the first time <laughs> I did it in the, in the system. So, you know, not everyone comes across it. And when they do, maybe they never want to again. <laughs> like most of my code, the first gen server I wrote was me just copying an entire class that Eric wrote wholesale or my right. or whatever. Yeah, it's just like completely copying and pasting from Eric. Smart uh, That actually <laughs> reminds me of, I took Bruce Tate's LabVIEW class last year. And we actually had in that class a first-time programmer who was learning Elixir as his first language. And he picked it up so well. I was actually really, you know, I was super impressed. I could not tell he'd only been programming for eight months. I think I mentioned him before. And at some point, we were saying something about like, oh, this is like real developer work or something. And he said, "Ah, I don't really ever feel like a real developer. I've just been copying and pasting code all day. And then we all kind of looked at each other. It was a Zoom class. You know, we all looked at each other. And then somebody was like, do we tell him? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was a good moment. (laughs) But I think about that kind of situation a lot because you mentioned, you know, going back to you said that you might not recommend Elixir as as a first language because it might be harder to get a job. We've also heard people say that hiring an Elixir can be an advantage because you kind of get more people with a greater passion for programming because they found it somehow. You know, they found Elixir. That means that they're not the average run-of-the-mill JavaScript or Ruby dev or whatever. So I don't know. Do you think there's another side to that possibly? Yeah, maybe. I mean, like, for example, talking about Melvin again, like he was gung-ho into Elixir for months, you know, and he was able to like give some talks at like conferences and the meetup and that kind of thing and like really get his name out there within the Elixir community. And like, yeah, I think that it's like a small enough pond that like, if you are really into it, you can be very visible versus in JavaScript or something where there's a million people all going after the same jobs, I guess. Yeah. But do you really want to be even seen writing JavaScript? <laughs> our running stick on the show is to uh to make fun of javascript so yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was our, our one take for today <laughs> yeah. i don't even really it. I, I don't really mean that. i think javascript is a real programming language i thought of something else though that was hard for me like switching into elixir was some of the different paradigms for like what's the word for it like control structure so like changing from like using like while loops and that kind of thing to having to use recursion all the time, like those kinds of switches were kind of more difficult for me to make or like switching from doing more like conditional logic to using like pattern matching and like multiple function heads and that kind of thing. I think that those were some of the things that were like 
took a bit of getting used to, or at least like I kind of like peripherally knew them, but being able to actually internalize and be like, oh, I should do that here (laughs) took a long time for me to figure out. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's similar for any language, really. You learn the cool things and you want to use them. And then when, when the opportunity arises, use them. You forget that you had it. I always notice that like when, when I'm interviewing and I have to do like a like a silly code challenge that's like, huh, go to the end of this game board. I always default to a for loop. Why do I do that? I never use it in real life, you know? So I just think that's kind of funny, like how we, we forget things sometimes, even though we really do know it. If you had one thing to tell somebody who was of a, you know, of a minority or was a woman who was trying to enter the Elixir community, what's some advice that you would give them? I think a lot of it is like one thing that I've been able to do in the Elixir community that's made me feel more included is like myself stepping forward to like make that Slack channel or like we just kind of did a similar thing over at our Blinker Slack was we just made like a women of Blinker group, like kind of being the change that you want to see in the world or whatever, you know, like sometimes as much as the impetus should be on like the people of power to make some of these changes at the same time, like if it's not happening, sometimes you've got to like step up to make the community that you want. Going out and finding the other people that are inherently part of that community, but maybe you didn't even know about. So that's been pretty cool. Yeah, we'll definitely have to chat in that channel more. I'm going to Definitely see if I can get some gifts in there, some emojis. Well, we'll make fetch happen. We'll do it. (laughs) We're going to make the emojis happen, Sunday. Please. That's all I ask for 2021 is to get emojis into the Elixir Lang Slack. That's all I want. Very cool. Alexander, any final plugs, asks for the audience, shameless self-promotion? The floor is yours. Definitely send me a DM in that Elixir Slack. I think my handle on there is check, C-H-A-K, and I can get you added to the private channel for women and diverse genders on there. But yeah, I guess like final takeaway as far as diversity in tech in general is it kind of, yeah, again, falls on all of us to like, like one person that is like really making an effort and being a good listener and that kind of thing can make the team feel much more inclusive. And the same way, like one person that is just putting out a bad vibe or like making rude comments or whatever can totally ruin somebody's experience at a company or whatever, in a meetup or whatever. So like, yeah, it kind of falls on all of us to be good active listeners and make sure that people that are less privileged are being heard and that kind of thing. Able to actually make the changes that they need. Excellent. Hey, thank you for joining us on Elixir Wizards. Before we close out the show, we'd like to share another quick mini feature interview with you. It's a brief segment where we showcase somebody from the community that's working at a company using Elixir in production, and we'll learn about how they're using Elixir. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to our new mini feature segment of Elixir Wizards. My name is Sandy Mint, and today we're speaking with Bill Paragoy, software engineer at Instinct Science. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. So we're all Elixir enthusiasts here, and we would love to hear about your background in Elixir and how you got started in Elixir and in programming in general. 
I'm going to share my age here, but my programming experience goes back to writing Fortran on punch cards in high school. And then I got a TRS-80 and quickly learned basic was boring. So I learned Z80 assembly language and went from there. Most of my career has actually been in the hardware world. I was designing semiconductor chips for many, many years. And then maybe five or six years ago, I decided I wanted to move into pure software. So I jumped into the Ruby world which led me to the Elixir world because of the similar syntax. Awesome. And if it makes you feel any better, that's not the first time we've heard that on the podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> great. Could you give us a little background on Instinct Science? Give us maybe like a quick elevator pitch on what your company does? Yeah, sure. We're a uh, veterinary medicines company and we're a startup about three and a half years old. We initially focus on one small area of that problem, which is treatment machines. Basically, a patient's in the hospital for a long period of time. They're getting these regular treatments every few hours. That's largely still done on paper with clipboards right now, which is error-prone and dangerous. So we jumped into that field, and we now have about 200 uh, hospitals using our software, and we're slowly expanding to be a full electronic medical record system. That is no easy task, so props to you guys. So how does Elixir come to the mix? What you use, is it your entire production system or is it just some internal tooling? All of our backend is an Elixir. Everything is there from Elixir with an API using Absence to a little bit of live view code here and there. But we use nothing but Elixir on the backend, which is super cool. Interesting. So you mentioned LiveView. At this point in time, we haven't run into too many people who have been using LiveView in production. So is that sort of something that you guys have been doing? It's something we're brand new with. We have one sort of niche product that gives a portal for our referring hospitals to use. And that seemed like an ideal place. It was a fairly small project. We didn't need a really interactive front end. And it seemed a great time to give LiveView a try on a pretty low risk pro project. Awesome. It sounds like you guys aren't really afraid of you know taking risks and kind of trying out the new thing. How do you guys pitch a new technology or bringing on something like LiveView when you want to integrate it into your systems? We're all kind of like programming geeks and we try stuff out inside projects. We bring it back to the team and then we look for some place that we can try something out that's relatively low risk. We don't want to change technology in our core project in a big way. But when we find something that's pretty low risk, we just prototype it and decide to back out if it doesn't work, or we just move forward if it seems to be working. I guess, what is your criteria for that decision-making process? How do you decide to back out, I guess? It's kind of a gut feel at some point. You go through the process and, you know, like I said, we try to pick small enough projects where it's not something we feel like we're going to back out on because it's we're not using any corner case features of, the, of live view. We're using a pretty much mainstream stuff. So I feel like we don't have a set criteria, but it's kind of like try things out small, do enough to know it's going to work, and then forge forward. Nice. So on to some more Elixir specifics. Are there some perks using Elixir or challenges that you've run into that are maybe top of mind? What I love about Elixir most, I think the simplicity using the functional paradigm makes it very, very simple. And we end up having a lot fewer dependencies than we would in a Node or even in a Ruby environment. So I love having few dependencies because you control more of your destiny that way. I definitely agree. I've also run into that same gut feeling myself. What about some challenges? Challenges? I don't know if there's any real challenges. We, we've been pretty happy with it. I mean, a lot of people talk about hiring challenges, but we found it a big plus for us because you have this much smaller pool to draw from. 
but usually a pool that's very dedicated and excited about getting an elixir job. So we found very few challenges to it. I don't think there's anything that says, oh, I wish we were using Ruby or Node here. We just love elixir. Yeah, I think similarly, we've seen that a lot in the industry. People will say that a lot. When you are able to hire somebody who's interested in Elixir, do you normally go for somebody who is experienced in Elixir or do you hope to find somebody who's just like a smart engineer and then they can pick it up? Yeah, we're a startup right now. We have five backend engineers right now. So we're looking for experienced people and people that can come on board and jump into Elixir immediately. So we've been looking for experienced people. I'd love in the future to be able to train people up because I think one of the downsides to looking for experienced people in Elixir is your bias towards people who have time to play on their own and learn language on their own. So you may not be getting as diverse a population as you'd like. So I'd love in the future to get more diversity in the company by being able to train people up who might have a different background. We've also talked to a few people on the podcast who say that it's you get a really interesting, you're talking about like, there's a small pool that you pull from, but even just the pool of people who are interested in Elixir, maybe the ones who aren't experienced in it are also usually just a group of smart people who are really dedicated to their craft. So that's cool to hear. That's what we found. I've seen the same thing in hiring for Elm, like all the little fun niche functional languages. They have these dedicated fans who use them on side projects and just wish they could do it day to day. So when they find a job, they are awesome. Yes, absolutely. We always hope to find those people. If you get to that point where you're able to, you know, pull on some people, are there resources you hope to use? How would you go about onboarding those engineers? These newer people who don't have Elixir experience? Yeah, for the folks at home. I'm guessing we'd probably do. I haven't really thought much about this because we haven't gotten here yet, but I think we would do onboarding on our own. I don't know if we'd, you know, there may be some training classes we'd use and things like that, but I find normally if you get a smart person who's familiar with something and you dole out projects and a reasonable pace, give them a small project, learn the language and move forward from there, on-the-job training is usually the best way to go. Absolutely. What is the future of your company's projects looks like with Elixir? Is there something that you're really excited about with Elixir that you're hoping to use in a future project or anything like that? I think one thing for us, we've been pretty conservative about what we use out of Elixir. We don't use a lot of OTP and and things like that yet. So I think there's a lot of areas we could improve things quite a bit by having more processes and having a little more robust product because of that. So I see some of that. We aren't making great use of subscriptions and absence yet, and we'd love to be doing more of that. So we're just making fewer API calls because we're providing data when it's needed versus polling. So a lot of shortcuts we took to get to market quickly resulted in us using a lot, a smaller subset of Elixir. And I'd love to just get a little fancier and do some things that will make our product better. Yeah, that's awesome. I think like the first thing that I took a look at when I was really getting into Elixir was pattern matching. And I just kind of went all in on that for a while and kind of ignored the other pieces. So it's always nice to have things to look forward to. You can't know everything about a language unless I guess you wrote it. So maybe you just yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cool. So our last question is just a fun question. If you weren't a software engineer, what would you be? Well, if I had all my dreams, it would have been an astronaut, of course. I grew up during the Apollo program and was obsessed with that. I think that's where I really got my love of math and sciences through that. So probably that would be where I would go. Unrealistic, but cool. No, you dream it and then that's how you make a reality. So nothing is unrealistic in my book. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. 
to all of our listeners, if you or your company are using Elixir in an interesting way and want to come on the show for a mini feature, we'd love to have you. Reach out to us at podcast at smartlogic.io with your name, your company's name, and how you're using Elixir. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Alexandra Chakras, my co-host, Sunday Mint. And once again, I am Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast here at Smart Logic. We're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, React, infrastructure projects using Kubernetes and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. And don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Add us on all of those and join us next week on Elixir Wizards for more on adopting Elixir. Elixir.